Welcome to 7-Minute Torah with me, Rabbi Micah Streifer. Here's how this podcast works. Each week we begin with about 7 to 10 minutes on the weekly parsha, hence the name 7-Minute Torah. You'll either hear me, or you'll hear me in conversation with a Jewish thought leader. After that, if you want to stick around, we continue with a bonus interview where we talk about all things Jewish. Thanks for tuning in and being part of the conversation. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Welcome. We're reading this week from Nitzavim, which is the fourth to last portion in the book of Deuteronomy. It begins at Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9, and it goes through chapter 30, verse 20. The word Nitzavim means to stand, because the Parsha begins with Moses telling the people that they are standing together. Atem Nitzavim Hayom, all of you are standing today before your eternal God. What this is describing is a ceremony of entering into covenant. Just before the people of Israel cross over into the promised land, they enter into covenant with God. They accept the terms of the agreement that's being made with God, which includes following the mitzvot, generally living a Jewish life. Our conversation today is with Rabbi Jesse Pakin. Rabbi Pakin is a community rabbi. He's based right now in Toronto, but some of the time in Washington, D.C. And as you're going to hear in the interview, he's been involved in hospital chaplaincy, various kinds of teaching and congregational work. I'll also say that Rabbi Pakin is a real thinker. He represents a very thoughtful approach to understanding Judaism and interpreting words of Torah and applying their ideas to real life. As always, we'll spend the first little while talking Parsha, and then move on to our bonus interview. Rabbi Jesse Pakin, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Hello. We'll say more about you in the second part of the, the conversation. We're going to talk Parsha first, but I, I, I'll just mention that you're joining me this morning from Washington, D.C., so thanks for taking some time, some of your precious time to, to talk Torah and to talk Judaism with me this morning. I'm delighted to connect with you in, in my hometown where you are. So we're going to talk about Nitzavim. We're reaching the end of the Torah here, and, and Nitzavim is very much about covenant. And you pointed out to me, I'll be honest, a verse that I had never spent very much time on before, which I'm going to read if it's okay. Deuteronomy chapter 29, I'll read verses 17 through 19. Great. It says, Perchance there is one among you, some man or woman or some clan or tribe, whose heart is even now turning away from the eternal our God, to go and worship the gods of those nations. Perchance there is among you a stock sprouting poison weed and wormwood. When such a one hears the words of these sanctions, he may fancy himself immune, thinking, I will be safe, even though I follow my own willful heart to the utter ruin of moist and dry alike. The Eternal will never forgive them. Rather, will the Eternal's anger and passion rage against that man till every sanction recorded in this book comes down upon him and the Eternal blots out his name from under heaven. So it's pretty harsh and it it's very much about fidelity and covenant. So tell me what thoughts or what questions did those verses raise up for you? Well, I think I think this is something you probably appreciate as a rabbi. One of one of the questions I most often get from people 
both people who, who are very familiar with Judaism and Jewish thought and Torah, and also particularly from people who are new to Judaism is, is you know, a variation of the question of like, what's the deal with the Old Testament? They, they have a vision of what others call the Old Testament, of, of the Torah, of being kind of fire and brimstone, reward and punishment, a very vengeful God. And that pops up right here very strongly that idea that the the old testament is the god of vengeance and the new testament is the god of love yeah that's that's something that i certainly hear a lot of particularly amongst the people um, i work with who are who are new to judaism or returning to judaism and uh, i have a lot of sensitivity to that i I, i'm not going to explain it away i'm not going to offer an apologetic for the perspective i think i think there is, there is love and there is compassion and grace in the Torah. It's very much there. Um, but yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of, of the language of reward and punishment. And I think it makes it makes sense to me that in a parsha that's rehashing the details of the covenant and reminding people that this is far reaching through space and time, it would make sense to, to remind people of the stakes of this. And I think it's particularly fascinating, the language the Torah uses that it could be individual, right? A man or a woman, or it could be, you know, maybe like a little bit more mass hysteria, right? Some clan or tribe. There's an understanding that when the rubber hits the road and the stakes get high, sometimes people get afraid. Like, oh my God, like this is real. Maybe I'm not up to this. Um, I'm, you know, there's a sense of awe and fear, I think, that the Torah recognizes of. Being a party to this covenant is not just, for some degree of personal benefit. There's a real sense of obligation and the stakes are very high. And I think the Torah, as much as it's a little harsh here, it's also very sensitive to aware to the awareness of that. You know, this is very real and don't shirk your responsibility. And then you get the warning of, of what will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think responsibility really does sit at the center of this. I know for me personally, it's a really uncomfortable theology, the idea that God is rewarding or punishing your fidelity to God in such harsh ways. But I think the kernel that sits at the center of that is the idea that you as an individual are responsible for for this covenant. If you don't maintain it, if you don't pass on these traditions to the next generation or keep them for yourself, make Judaism meaningful to you, find ways to keep Judaism vibrant and alive, no one else is going to do it for you. Right. I think the beauty of just these few verses right here are the degree to which responsibility is placed on both the tribe, but also on on an individual level. I think it's fascinating that it really dives into that question of who are you as an individual within the context of this covenant? And I think on the one hand, it's it's exactly as you said, yeah, you you bear this, right? You, you, um, it's you and everybody who God willing will will spring forth from you um, into the future. And though there's a check on that, right? There's, but don't think that you on your own get to be the arbiter of what's going to happen, right? It's not an individualistic theology. There's very much a reaction against that where it says, don't think that you can get out of this, right? Don't think that somehow you're the exception to the rule or that you're the only one based on your own intuition or your own sense of autonomy who can kind of extract yourself from the covenant. The language that you read in English, right, was when such a person hears the words of these sanctions, he may fancy himself immune, right? But the, mm-hmm. the Hebrew is amazing. It says, Hitbarech bilvavo, right? He'll bless himself in his heart. And I, I think that's intentional language that's in contrast to the, the warnings against idolatry. You have very stark language saying, don't go stray after these other gods. Don't turn away 
to everyone else. And then you hear have language saying, don't pray to yourself. Don't think that you're the one who can offer you the blessings or the protections if you decide to go off um, and do this on your own. It's a very, um, it's a very stark warning against thinking that you can elevate yourself to the level of our God. Oh, interesting. So you're reading Hitbarech, though, to bless yourself, then it meaning almost to pray to yourself, to yeah. idol, to worship yourself as an idol or your yeah. own well-being as an idol. That's right. And that's very apropos for a moment as people are trying to suss out their relationship to communities and regulations and rules about communal safety in the midst of a pandemic. There's this sense of don't think that you can just say to yourself, I'll be safe. I'll follow my own will. My, my own desires and and everything will be okay. And the, and the metaphor that the Torah uses, this, this language of to the utter ruin of moist and dry, like that was very confusing to me. What does that mean? Um, and so I think, you know, Rashi's commentary on this, he, he understands it to be a metaphor for the two kinds, for two kinds of people who, who break halacha, who break mm-hmm. halacha, right? There's, there's this idea of the shogeg and the mazid, the person who willfully breaks the law and the person who unintentionally breaks the law. Um, and he's attaching that to these ideas. And um, he brings this amazing comment that I think is fascinating. And that's that, look, sometimes we're going to mess up. Um, there's no human who perfectly follows Torah. We unintentionally violate lots of the prohibitions in, in Torah. And Rashi says, this teaching that God, at the time of judgment, is often willing to let those things go. All right, it was unintentional. You didn't mean to do it, right? We can we can let that one go. But the person who hiparach bilvavo, right? The person who blesses himself in his heart and um, elevates himself to a divine authority, that person, Rashi says, God counts all of those unintentional transgressions as if they were intentional, right? You like you didn't leave well enough alone. You could have just. Um, seeing yourself as part of the community and not needed to elevate yourself up, but you brought so much attention on yourself and tried to make yourself godlike and think that you could get out of the covenant and that it wouldn't apply to you. Now we're going to count your unintentional transgressions um, as if they were intentional. Because you've abdicated your responsibility to others, to the community, to God, to the world. Ultimately, covenant is actually about relationship. And so maybe the language of Hitbarech Bilvavo, the um, of blessing oneself in one's heart, is a reminder not only about self-aggrandizement, but also to, to remember those responsibilities we have to everybody else around us, which is appropriate for the pandemic that we're living in, for the high holy days that we're coming up on. There's, there's even something there I wonder if like um, the act of being in a covenantal community is one of the very things that sustains you where otherwise you would be persecuted or judged. Um, right. And and it's the, the act of separating yourself from that, that bring, you brought it on yourself, he's almost saying, right? You, had, you, had you stayed in community, you would have benefited from the protection um, or the sustenance that that community offers. But now that you've taken yourself out of that, you're on your own. And, and I wonder I wonder if Rashi's also uncomfortable with the, the system of reward and punishment that's very hard to sit with. And so maybe he's pushing back also and asking the same question of, well, all right, well, why do some people get more punishment than others? And one of his answers here is, it's not like a capricious or a vengeful God. It's actually, no, you brought this on yourself, right? It, it, he, he leans back into that sense of, personal responsibility and and 
wanting to enforce the idea that um, we don't live in a world where you can do whatever you want and expect there to be no repercussions for our action. That's a really powerful idea, and I think a good place to stop for the first part of our interview. To our listeners, if you'd like to stick around, Rabbi Pakin and I are going to continue talking Torah, and we'll also make our way into some other interesting Jewish topics. Thanks for being part of our conversation today. Hey there, Rabbi Micah Streifer here. I want to invite you to continue the conversation in our new Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and search 7-Minute Torah Listen and Discuss. Then you can join the group and join the conversation. See you there. So we're back. Uh, can I share one more interpretation about this passage, actually? I would love it. Yeah. Um, I was reading Ibn Ezra, and Ibn Ezra is interested in the word tzfot. It means, in, again, as we translate it in the English, it says to the utter ruin of moist and dry alike. The, the Hebrew says something like to sweep away the wet and the dry. Or So Ibn Ezra isn't sure what that word sweep away means. And he says possibly it means to destroy, meaning that this this person who's blessing themselves in their heart thinks that they're going, that the righteous and the wicked are just swept away equally. So I might as well just be wicked because what's the difference? And Ibn Ezra, he actually disagrees with that. Um, with that interpretation, but it's interesting even to think about. But ultimately, he settles on the idea that it means to add, to add dry to the wet, which is to say to add wicked to the righteous. And so he, his condemnation then of this mit barach bilvavo, of this self-aggrandizing person, is that they're willing to add just a little bit of wrong to the right, a little bit of uh, of of wicked to society's righteous and to say essentially society will get by because there are enough good people i don't need to worry about what i add so then the condemnation is actually about those who would who would essentially think that their actions don't matter i don't have to be good i don't have to do wow. for others because society has enough of that already and what i do doesn't matter yeah. So I think that's interesting also in terms of the world that we're living in, that sense of responsibility to others um, in, in a pandemic time and what it means to, to be vaccinated, what it means to, to wear a mask, even if I am already vaccinated, what it means to think I have a responsibility to the people around me and that my actions actually make a difference. Yeah, you know, when I was reading into this, you know, every now and then it feels like the Torah is speaking just to the exact moment that we're in. It's almost a cliche. And then every now and then you get one of those ones that makes you have to pause and really take stock. Oh, wow. Right. Like there, there was actually what feels to me like a very direct message here. And that's often we frame the sense of covenants um, in kind of up down language between, between us and God, right? We do X and God does Y and that, builds this covenantal community. Um, but here, at least in, in the commentary, there, there definitely seems to be a sense of the horizontal nature of that relationship also. Um, and that you can't, you can't just leave everything to God and you can't leave everything to yourself. There's very much a sense of um, our, our kind of interpersonal covenantal obligations to one another. Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, a really central Jewish idea as well. Uh, so, you know, speaking of pandemic and speaking of medical care, I know you spent the summer 
working in hospital chaplaincy. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about that experience. Yeah. If you had asked me when um, I was uh, studying to be a rabbi, um, if this was the kind of work that I imagined myself doing, I would have very much said no. I took the bare minimum of classes in pastoral counseling. Hmm. Um, and if you had asked me when I was graduating and, and getting close to ordination, I would have said absolutely not. Um, that's, that's not what I'm, I'm interested in doing. And so, you know, there's a little bit of dark humor around what I've, I've wound up doing recently um, and how I've understood um, some of the obli obligations of work um, as a rabbi. I, I think on the one hand, um, working in spiritual care and counseling in a hospital setting, I felt um, a degree of, of obligation given the world that we're living in now, that this is work that's necessary both for patients and, and for the medical staff who are undergoing daily trauma uh -huh. and caring for other people and experiencing burnout. But I, I guess one of the things that sharpened this and crystallized it for me was a question that um, came to me. I don't, I don't remember who asked it. I think it was in the context of the high holidays a number of years ago. Um, that somebody said to me, if you, if you actually believe that every human being is created in the image of the divine and is therefore infinitely worthy of dignity and care um, and chesed, um, um, you know, acts of loving kindness, if you actually believe that, and that's not a slogan that you just say every now and then to make yourself feel good, like if you actually believe that that's how the universe works, and I do, huh. um, well, then I'm like, what are you doing right now, right? What are you doing? Every day we, we say a list in Shachari of um, the obligations that we understand ourselves to have towards each other based on that principle, based on having been created um, with, with, the, with the imprint of the divine. And so that was a very hard question that I had to ask myself because the answer was, well, not a whole lot. Okay. You know, I think I'm reasonably good at honoring my family, my parents. Um, you know, I'm so, so at arriving early for, <laughs> for study and prayer. Right. These are some of those obligations that are listed in that, that paragraph you're talking about from the morning service. That's right. Um, but, you know, the other big ones like um, clothing the naked and visiting the sick and accompanying the dead for burial, I'm really failing morally at all of those things. Um, and that uh, was a very painful awareness to come to. Um, and one of the first things I did was I um, called up the rabbi at the shul that I go to in Washington and said, put me on um, the Tahara committee. Um, you know, add me to the list of people that prepare the dead for burial, uh, which is all volunteer. And then, uh, you know, that's a once every now and then. Thank God that's a once every now and then. But I realized as I was considering the work that I wanted to be doing as a rabbi, one of the other things that I could be doing that was very much needed right now was um, Bikur Cholim, visiting the sick um, in its broadest sense, right? People who are emotionally, physically, and spiritually unwell, um, uh, which is what brought me to, to do the training and work in the hospital, um, accompanying people in these moments of trauma and, and illness of all sorts. Uh, I think there's a lot of thanks and gratitude being given right now for frontline healthcare workers. And that uh, I, would, I would say that unless you live with one of those people or are close with them or are one yourself, people have no idea how hard and how bad it is right now. 
um, and the degree to which um, the people who we trust to care for others are in need of so much care themselves. Was it a very difficult type of work for you? Yeah, this is the, 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 the funny thing. It's, it's, it's surprisingly not hard for me. Um, it's, um, it's not hard in the moment. It's not, I, I, you know, my temperament, I think, lets me be with people who are different from myself. Um, you know, the irony of all of this is that this, this emerged from like such a strong sense of Jewish obligation for me. Um, and I would say, you know, over the course of three months, I had maybe four or five patients who were Jewish. And most of the people who I was seeing weren't Jewish themselves. Sure. Uh, and most of the people I was working with weren't Jewish. That part was not hard. Um, you know, being present to death and severe illness and emotional anguish um, is not easy. What the hard part is figuring out, what do you do after you've seen that? Right? What do you do when you go home? Um, you know, can you bring that with you into your house? No, that's not very healthy, but you also can't pretend that it doesn't exist. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, you know, the, the, the obligatory nature of this in Judaism, I think to a degree understands that, yeah, it might be hard, but everyone ideally has the ability to do something, right? You know, do you need to um, attend to the psychological trauma that someone with a psychiatric disorder is experiencing? No, probably not. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't sit with someone, right? That's, that's possible. That's something that hopefully most people can do. And that uh, I think hard means different things to different people, yeah. uh, but it's something that we can do. Which again speaks to that language of covenant, the responsibilities we have to each other. That the covenant is, I mean, I, I know here we're talking about the covenant of the Jewish people, but in a sense, as B'nai Adam, as descendants of Adam, which is the Hebrew word for human being, we're all in covenant with each other. And we have this sense of, we have this responsibility to take care of each other during moments like this. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, so many of, of those on the front line right now feel so much anger and frustration, right? That, that it's as if that covenant that they thought they were a part of with their fellow citizens, with their governments, with their employers, they, um, a lot of people feel like that's been betrayed, right? There's, there, I don't, I don't wanna mischaracterize. I think there's been more than it's certainly any time in my lifetime, um, an outpouring of thanks and gratitude to, towards healthcare professionals of all sorts. Um, but, you know, standing on your balcony and applauding is, is beautiful and I think does send a message and that's one thing, but you know, making meaningful change in a very large healthcare system, you know, right. I'm thinking particularly in Ontario, um, is, is different. And I think a lot of people f- f- have felt like they've been left out of that covenant that they thought that they were a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you add into that the, the question of vaccinations and that ultimately there, we as a society have to make the choice to move forward with a vaccination program that will that will that will move this pandemic toward its end and that the longer this goes on the more strain we put on those people who are actually working at the front lines yeah i think i guess just you know to go full circle on on the on the parsha here you know i'm very i'm very careful around drawing direct lines between torah and public policy right the torah was not written as as a public policy document and in as much as I can draw my conclusions, I'm, I, I have enough, I think, humility to understand that somebody else can just as easily draw the exact opposite. I'm very careful around saying um, God demands X public policy in 2021 North America. 
But having said that, one of the things that I think the way that um, this little bit of this Parsha has been understood is the tension between individual gut feeling and communal spiritual obligation that has both um, the community and our kind of religious obligations in mind. And um, at least here, right, at least here, the Torah is unequivocally opposed to don't think, don't think that you and your gut feeling um, are good enough. Uh-huh. They're not, right? And so I think, you know, people can extrapolate that to the pandemic and vaccinations all they want right now. Um, and I don't think that Nitzavim is talking about vaccinations, but I do think that it is talking about, um, you know, where we understand the source of our obligations. And in a world right now where I think we're seeing the detrimental effects of hyper-individualism and a focus too much on personal autonomy without a sense of communal obligation, the Torah right now is saying, "Uh uh-uh, like certainly not in a spiritual sense, that's not where authority comes from. um, And that's not where guidance, at least in this sense, comes from. Spoken like a true Canadian. (laughs) Right. Uh, well, so if you're working your way down that checklist, you know, you'll get eventually to Havaad Shalom Ben Adam Lechavero, you know, making peace among people. So once you're done with hospital chaplaincy, maybe we'll unleash you on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Great. We'll figure it all out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I also understand, because you told me, that you're working on a new podcast. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, it's just what the, the world needs, right, is another is another podcast, certainly what the Jewish world needs. Um, exactly. the, you know, this was... Um, Again, funnily, like not like uh, an aspiration that I felt I needed to do just because everyone else has done. I think we're saturated with 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 podcasts. Um, but w- one of the things that I do in the nature of my work, both um, in a, in a multi faith setting and also with um, a lot of the people who I teach Jewishly are people who are coming new to Judaism, um, is really leaning in on all sorts of all the kinds of questions that people have and. Um, I, I think one of the things that I, I realized fairly quickly is if you're teaching in an hour and a half long class, or if you're encountering people in a hallway in the hospital who have questions about, oh, what is, what is this thing in Judaism? Uh, you know, tell me more about this. I think there's a lot of genuine curiosity and interest. And I, one of my frustrations is I always run out of time. Um, and that's as much about um, my long-windedness as it is about, um, I think that people generally don't understand uh, Jewishly that there's not an answer to everything. It's right. Pe- people often ask me, you know, what does Judaism say about X, Y, Z slash Z? And uh, it, do you do the, it depends thing and then watch their faces just, you know, have so much exasperation. I do because there's never a single, there's almost never a single answer. You know, right. I, I need the next half hour to explain to you all the different nuances of what Judaism has to say about that thing. Right. And, you know, I grew up in that system and I appreciate the ambiguity. I love it. It's been central to, to my theology and my, my theologies, plural, and my spirituality. But I, I, one of the things that this summer itself actually crystallized for me was people don't get that. People don't understand that. There, there is a non-Jewish version of what the word religion means that has been imposed onto Judaism. Um, and so people, I think, People who aren't Jewish or aren't familiar with Jewish thought often want it to be like what they assume the word religion to mean, um, and that's not for me at least. That's not a, 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 a like a that idea isn't indigenous to Judaism. You're talking about the idea of having a central doctrine. 
Yeah, right. Of having like the answer to the question that right. somebody might ask. That's um, that's not necessarily um, a Jewish idea. And right. so what this podcast, so first of all, the podcast is called Shoot, um, which uh, is a play on words, right? If I, if I were to say, hey, can I ask you a question? You might say, yeah, shoot. shoot. Um, I also like the agricultural metaphor that's in there, right? Something shooting forth out of the ground. Uh, but really where it comes from is from the, the acronym for the, the form of Jewish legal literature called Sheilot Uchuvot, um, which in English um, means questions and answers. Uh -huh. um, and in Hebrew is known by uh, this acronym SHOOT. And there's you know, this thousand year old tradition of sending a question off to someone who had um, rabbinic uh, authority and then getting an answer back. Um, and uh, I, that's, you know, the I'm, I'm certainly not entering into the field of providing halachic or legal um, authority for other people. This is just my um, hopefully somewhat learned take on um, some answers. Um, but it's uh, an, an introduction to what some of the answers are and where people can turn to find um, more, uh, more information if they want it. And, um, and done particularly with a sense of uh, valuing people's time. Um, so the idea is 10 minutes, uh, yeah. one question, um, a series of answers where you can look for more information. Um, hopefully we'll be rolling out the first few episodes um, after the holidays by the, end of, uh, by the end of this year. And you can go to shootpodcast.com. Um, both to find out more information and also to ask questions. Because again, I feel like the sense of uh, the last thing we need is another podcast. So that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but it, but it's a great concept. I, I, so do you see this as for beginners to Judaism? Is it for people who already have some knowledge and are looking for more? What, who's your audience here? My, my hope is, is, is twofold. One is it definitely emerges from um, the communities that I work with are people who are um, either brand new to Judaism um, and like don't even know what the word halacha, Jewish law, means, um, but that the kinds of answers that you'll find in these questions uh, are interesting even for someone who's gone to yeshiva, their whole <laughs> um, You know, that's kind of baked into this idea of there being a multiplicity of perspectives and ideas um, is eventually you're going to come across something that you haven't learned before. Um, and it might just be because of the community that you're brought up in or the teachers that you've had access for. Um, so the idea is really um, accessible to all, informed by the kinds of questions that people who are newer to Judaism might ask, uh, but hopefully um, people will find um, answers in there, um, no matter kind of how, how far back your Jewish pedigree stretches. Well, I look forward to listening to it. I'm excited to hear what, what you have to teach us there. Thank you. Uh, so can I ask you two more questions? Absolutely. So I like to ask about rituals and about books, because I think that they're both really central to Judaism. So I'll ask you first, is there one Jewish ritual that uh, is particularly meaningful to you? Um, I hope that this is an okay answer. It's a little dancing around your question, but I want to say cooking. I, uh, I enjoy cooking um, for my wife and my family. And um, particularly around the Chagim and Shabbos. Um, and I, I think that there, I don't think that there's something only Jewish. This is something that all cultures have, right? The centrality of food and eating together 
um, and the community that's built around that. Um, but I think a lot about um, uh, how it is that food brings us together and but how specifically the ritual for me isn't eating food, the ritual is cooking, right? So for me, on a, because I don't work in a synagogue, I have the, the luxury of having all day Friday to myself. I'm not preparing, you know, last minute a sermon. And so that it means that I have noticed for myself that baking challah and planning a meal and cooking it is part of my preparation for Shabbos. And that I, I actually love, you know, when I look at the clock and it's six o'clock and, oh, we're not quite ready yet. And I'm just rushing towards to get ready so that we can all be together to enjoy Shabbos together. If I'm not doing that, it almost feels like, um, like it's like Shabbos isn't coming or the holiday isn't coming. It almost like, like if, you know, there are days when we're really busy and okay, we're going to order in foods and, and, you know, we'll have challah and we'll make kiddush, but we've also ordered in food. Um, and I, I want to normalize that. That's absolutely okay to do. Sure, I completely agree. Um, but, I, you know, those days don't feel like Shabbos in, this, in the same way. I know it is. I know I'm kind of satisfying my obligations, but they don't feel like it. I actually heard a, a beautiful Hasidic story about these two Rebbe's who, who had like this, this kind of almost like metaphysical question about like, how do we know that Shabbos is actually Shabbos, right? Like that that day of the week is actually, that the Talmud actually asks the question of what do you do if you get lost in the desert, you forget what day is Saturday. And so they go to their Rebbe and they, and they say, what do we do? And he says, well, um, pick any day of the week and put on your finest clothes and sing your Shabbos Zmiros, your, your Shabbos songs and cook the best food that you have and drink your wine and light some candles and refrain from work, huh. see what happens. And so they do that. And then they go back to the Rebbe a few days later. And he says, so what happened? And they said, well, it, it felt like Shabbos. And like, we're, how did it, like, it wasn't though. Why did it feel like Shabbos? Like, shouldn't there have been kind of that metaphysical spark of the divine that happened on that day? And the Rebbe said to them, what were you expecting? You huh. ate like it was Shabbos. You dressed like it was, you sang like it was. You were with your family like it was. Of course it felt like Shabbos. So like the, for me, the act of cooking is very much um, a part of the ritual of helping prepare and bring myself into kind of that spiritual setting. I love that. And by the way, I don't believe in wrong answers. So that was a perfect <laughs> answer. It, it occurs to me actually that Pesach in some ways is the extreme of what you're describing, where we actually incorporate the foods into the service itself. The foods have very specific symbolisms, but that actually every Jewish holiday, with the exception of Yom Kippur, has that, where the foods themselves are a part of the celebration. And Yom Kippur in and of itself is the the opposite of that, right? The lack of food is actually um, is the source of the symbolism. So I think I love that you said cooking, that you cited cooking as a Jewish ritual, because of course, cooking has been a Jewish ritual, or at least a part of Jewish ritual ritual preparation for thousands of years already. Yeah, I you know I I, I think that like um, like many people, I took up baking a challah when the pandemic started, mm -hmm. and I'll tell you that saying motzi changed for me. I, I knew where the bread came from, uh, and it absolutely changed for me. Um, and so the act of cooking for for a holiday or for Shabbos, um, the the brachas feel. Um, they feel different, right? Like they feel, I, I, you know, part of me wants to say they feel more authentic, but I, I think that, you know, saying if you have a blessing practice, saying it over 
um, store-bought food is no less authentic, but um, it does feel, I think, a little bit like I feel closer to the meaning of the prayers. I can see that and how it can, it connects you both with, with Judaism and also with, I guess, what you bring to it, your own sense of preparation and spirituality. Yeah, absolutely. This past Friday, quick story about that, then I'll ask you my, my last, my last question. Uh, this past Friday, I was with my parents for the first time in a year and a half, as I told you before we started recording. Uh, we had a Shabbat dinner and my dad, like you, has taken up baking because for him, the pandemic coincided with his retirement. So there's been a lot more baking. So they live in a different country. So I keep seeing pictures of the bagels he makes or the pretzels or the challah or, you know, the, the things that I never get to taste. But this past Friday, we had at our Shabbat table both challah as well as a Yemenite bread called kubane, which was a sort of a pull away butter filled. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was unbelievably delicious. And I thought I was I felt so proud of this bread, this multiplicity of of food offerings that Judaism has to offer. We, I felt like we were celebrating both Ashkenazi and Yemenite Jewish tradition at the same time and, and that we really can connect again, both vertically and horizontally with with God and with fellow Jews through mm -hmm. the cooking and through the foods that we eat. So thanks for that answer. Yeah. Uh, so last question, as I, as I said about books, this is a hard question. What book do we all need to read? <laughs> all of them? Uh, um, I'm looking at my Goodreads right now to <laughs> <Is that> see. <laughs> This, this question scares me because I feel like, it feels like the, like, what does Judaism say about question, right? Like, sure. So as a, a disclaimer, then I'll just say, I would never ask you what book teaches everything about Judaism. And I'm yeah. sure some books we all need to read, but you, know, you had to pick only one and we could allow two if you need. Yeah, okay. Um, amongst the books that I've read in the past year or so, um, one one of the ones that has left um, a lasting impact on me after I've stopped reading it, which I think is a, a good a good barometer of do I think other people should read it, um, is Five Little Indians by Michelle Good, and it's the story of um, five survivors of the the Canadian um, uh, Indian residential school system. Um, and how they're, it's more than just the five of them, but uh, it focuses on five of them and how their lives um, interacted with one another um, and were intertwined with one another. Um, it's fiction, of course, it's based on reality um, and real stories. And uh, I, I think one of the reasons it was, there are two reasons why it was so moving for me. Um, I think, you know, we're having this national reckoning in Canada right now um, around communal responsibility um, and historical responsibility. Um, and there's a lot of nonfiction, um, right? The, the whole purpose behind the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission was to bring out the truth and tell those stories. But fiction touches us in a different way and I think it's complementary. And so reading a story in this way um, and kind of being invited into these characters' lives um, touches you in a way that is different from reading the news or an official report. And there was one line in this book um, that took my breath away and I had 
I had to close the book. I had to stop, which was when two of the survivors, um, as they were older and re-met each other later in life, one of them said to the other one, you know, they're calling us survivors now. Hmm. That wasn't even a word that they had used to refer to each other. And I think for Jews, the word survivor carries such emotional and moral weights. Um, and to hear other people describe themselves in that way, um, you know, as a Jewish reader of that kind of story, um, if it doesn't touch you and, and force you to ask questions about um, my sense of my obligations to the people who I call survivors, um, you know, what does it mean for other people to see themselves in that same way? And, and, and what's my sense of responsibility toward them? It was, um, a very powerful moment. Um, highly recommend the book. It is not an easy read um, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a really um, important one. Thank you. It brings us full circle again, back to the Parsha and this idea of responsibility to each other and this idea of, of viewing others as created in God's image and viewing ourselves as responsible, as responsible for the welfare of the people who live around us and the, the society in which we're living. Yeah. Rabbi Jesse Pakin, I want to thank you for your time, for your wisdom, for spending some time talking to me today. Thanks for having me. That's our episode for this week. Again, my thanks to Rabbi Jesse Pakin for joining me as my guest. And to all of you, our listeners, as we approach Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I want to wish you a Shana Tova Umetuka, a good and sweet new year. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to 7-Minute Torah. If you enjoyed this program, please leave a review or a comment, and please pass it on to a friend. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week.